RX. This podcast contains descriptions of violent crimes that may be inappropriate for some listeners. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is Jocelyn Gonzalez from Studio 360. For our regular series, Day Jobs, we're going to meet a former literature and history teacher with a master's in liberal arts. He thought he was on a path for a successful academic career, but that all changed in 2001. 9-11 was my first day of graduate school. Like everyone else, I watched it unfold, and uh, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to uh, get that master's degree, I'm going to earn a black belt, and I'm going to go protect people from bad guys. The show will resume very, very shortly. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio360Show. And now, back to the podcast. My name is Edward Gillespie. I'm a detective in the Baltimore City Police Department. I've been on the force for 13 years. I've worked in various capacities in Baltimore City here. Today, Detective Gillespie is still teaching, but not at a university and the subjects aren't great books or philosophy. He's a cop who's an instructor at Baltimore Police Academy, where he teaches officers about community policing, ethics, and counterterrorism. But when he first started on the force, he worked the streets. When I first came on, I worked patrol. Those are the women and men that get the call. When you dial 911, it goes through eventually to them, and they're the ones that come to deal with the problem. And these are the people that work a post. We call it pushing a car. (laughs) I worked larceny from auto, intelligence or crime analysis, and I was in a unit, a special task force for our Pennsylvania Avenue corridor. Pennsylvania Avenue runs through Baltimore City, and it runs through some of our very high crime, uh, at-risk areas, so you have a lot of poverty, a lot of disrupted families, a lot of narcotics, a lot of health problems. So we were a task force specifically put together to help suppress the crime, the shootings, the narcotics distribution along the street. And this encompassed public housing, private housing, a lot of businesses, and a lot of open, empty space where there are vacant homes and um, almost like an urban wilderness. I can remember a, a child abuse case. This child had had half of its face literally bitten off by this woman who was probably suffering from mental illness and possibly on narcotics. I think about the, uh, the homicides. At one point there was one that a guy had been shot through the head. He was very young, maybe 21 years old, lying in an unfinished house. And I remember the flies gathering around him. I can remember one guy just saying to me, why don't you just go ahead and kill me? Kill me in this alleyway. I, I, I don't care anymore. I don't want to live anymore. Just And he started very methodically telling me, like, you know, put it behind my ear. No one's going to care. And having to go from that moment of you know, that adrenaline rush of chasing this person, the authoritative moment of, you know, show me your hands and get on the ground and, and 
then having to dial back and realize this is a very pain sick human being that looked at this police officer at me and said I think I want you to kill me and saying to him come on come out of this alley let me give you some information on how to get some help writing was very cathartic for me and it's become more cathartic as time has gone on because I, be I started using it more and more as a vehicle to express things I'd seen and uh, how I felt about them my uh dad was a history teacher and as a high school principal my mom was an English teacher I you know was an only child and spent a lot of time reading I went to a school in Philadelphia a private boys school and I studied history at George Washington University and all the time I've written I've always written fiction and I've always written poetry and as time has gone on I've just continued doing it and whatever was going on in my life was reflected in that police work found its way into that as well it's funny because my writing was very escapist for a while when I first got on the force. Um, and over time, it's become more and more focused on things I've seen and things I've done. There have always been these moments. This is the thing. There are these moments in policing, these distilled moments of an, a word, an image, a smell, a concept that to me bespeaks of a poem, kind of an encapsulated poem right there. I stopped this guy for this. I mean, he's just driving this rolling junk yard of a car. And um, and this guy took a moment and said, you know, brother, you need to make sure you take care of yourself. I didn't take care of my prostate and I've had all these problems. He just started telling me this his life story and how he ended up right there. This is called Suspended. The guy is a prison Muslim gray-bearded and dying of prostate cancer. He drove up here from Virginia in the battered white Honda that a mosque brother gave him, and I pulled him over for the missing lights, the reek of gas and rubber, the jigsaw of glass that should have been a rear window. His eyes are shuttered halfway as he calls me Mr. Officer from behind the wheel and admits that he hasn't had a license in five years. This trip, he thought, would give him something to do while he waited. He is sorry about the car and the mess he's made. He doesn't want me to think the worst of him. He just wanted me to know this. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry that you had to bother with this. I'm sorry. He said, I, well, he basically wanted to connect with me as, a, as a, a human being and said, you know, essentially he was on his way out. He expected to die. It was a really powerful moment. I want you to feel safe. I want to feel safe. I want to get this job done. I want to make sure you come away feeling as though you weren't abused. I want to make sure that if you are that person that we need to bring to justice, that we do it in a safe, professional way. And I mean, and I've been in situations where this person was combative. They were ready to fight a cop. <laughs> you know, I've been shot at. And, um, and I've also dealt with people that were just scared. And when someone is scared, I feel that I can talk to them in such a way that brings them down, that helps them understand, you know, we're not here to hurt you. I think it must have been my first year out. We had a homicide. I remember running from my car. The guy had been stabbed. And he looked at me. He was lying on his back with his arms spread wide. And he looked me in the eye, and I watched him take his last breath. This is called Final Hodge. 
When the call to prayer goes out from the mosque on Islamic Way, I am helping to load Tavon Fitzgerald into the back of Medic 4. He has only a small hole from the girl's kitchen knife over his heart, but his body will erupt with a raspberry tide when the residents down at Maryland General crack his chest to practice the alchemy of resurrection. They will fail, unable to make the quick out of the dead, and I will gather his clothes, baggy layers of ghetto soldier uniform heavy with blood, and document them on a police form 56. I will wrap the chain of his zodiac medallion around his butane lighter and stuff them into the smallest of the evidence envelopes. I will shake the clots loose from his ragged sweatshirt as I give it to the next red plastic bag in the pile. I will change my gloves three times and wonder whether he was distracted at that last moment by the loudspeaker reminding him that God is great. At the scene, there, there was negligible blood. I don't remember any. Um, when I got down to shock trauma, they cracked his chest, and then the I think there was more blood than I'd ever seen. Watched it kind of forming a lake around my boots as I went and looked down. And I ended up documenting his clothes, and they were heavy with blood. I've, I've read it in, in public, and um, some people are shocked by the imagery, the idea of seeing so much of a person's blood, which is something that most people will not experience, which is horrifying to them. A poem can be a type of, of ambassador from one world to another. This guy was a person. You know, he wasn't a statistic. He wasn't a concept. He was a person whose life ended. That's the thing that, one of the things I found so powerful, I'm like, I've got his personal effects in my hands and I'm processing them and thinking this, you know, this is this guy's lighter. I knew that in terms of my psyche, in terms of the cultures that I understand and my understanding of life, I'd crossed a kind of Rubicon, you know, that the people that sat in classes with me before this and were my students or my peers would not understand the world in which I lived. And it was kind of a baptism. When I talk to people, my friends are still in the academic world and we talk about things we've encountered, you know, at our jobs. That people say, no, no one's pulled a knife on me or said they wanted to kill me or fired a gun at me. And so the idea of saying, you know, wow, I could really die out here. This could be it. It's not I'm sitting in a philosophy class contemplating, you know, what if I died this way? What if what does this mean? It's like, no, I could actually physically die. This could be it. This is an actual thing. And then to to look at people that are in various stages of existential crisis. You know, um, will I exist tomorrow? Um, you know, am I going to eat again? Am I literally going to starve? There's a dead body in front of my home or in my community. You know, how close is this to me? Is this going to happen to me? Being that close to death, being that close to the fragility of life, it can't help but affect you. Detective Edward Doyle Gillespie is an instructor at the Baltimore Police Academy and the author of two published books of poetry, Masala Tea and Oranges, and on the later edition of Sancho Panza.
Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 